From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. On the show today, we have a new governor in Louisiana, and in light of the transition of power at the State House, we're taking a look back in history at Louisiana's and the nation's first black lieutenant governor and acting governor. But first, musician composer Charlie Rao completed a first of its kind artist's residency at the LSU School of Veterinary Medicine that has yielded a recently released album, Fit for Man and Beast. Thalria has 13 miniature tracks, the result of Rao's mission to musically translate the work being done at LSU Vet Med and compose a type of music that would serve both doctor and patient. With more on the experience and the album, Charlie Rao joins us now. Charlie, thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Charlie, how did you come to be an artist in residence at a veterinary school? I mean, how does a guy with his guitar end up in a place that heals sick animals? How did all this come together? My friend Sandra Sarr, who works in communications at uh, LSU Vent Med. Um, she is the architect of the residency program and brought in uh, Shelby for the first uh, artist in residence. And I was the second um, to do, and Shelby's a visual artist, so I came in to do uh, music. And it, so this was all Sandra's idea. Um, but I met Sandra at the Festival of Words, which is a literary conference that happens also in Louisiana down in Grand Coteau. I mostly compose music inspired by literature and sort of try to translate the intention of the literature into solo guitar lullaby pieces. So I was telling Sandra about this and um, we just stayed in touch and she had an idea that uh, it might be interesting if I tried doing that translation approach of composition, but instead of using literature, use the environment of the veterinary school and spend time sort of immersing myself in the environment with the doctors and the animal patients and see if I can use the same translation process to translate the intention behind wellness and healing. Well, yeah. you mentioned Shelby, uh, Shelby Prendeville. She was the first uh, artist in residence to serve there at the veterinary school, but you're the first musical artist in residence. How did you decide what you wanted to do, how you could do it? What was your process? Sandy had a really great idea when I got there she set up a bunch of one-on-one -on -one meetings with me and various practitioners doctors clinicians vet techs so a big part of the way I work is I prefer to be much more input than output uh, so I wanted a lot of information to think about and to feel although I did start writing music pretty early I wasn't focused on writing music immediately I was more focused on having something to write the music about now, did you have any previous experience with the effects of music on animals? I know I have a husky terrier. When I sing and play my guitar, my husky terrier sings. I can see, you know, he, he really feels it. What, and what did you experience, you know, as you played at the vet school? Um, I, I had no real experience with, with music and animals uh, before at all, actually. So I was going in not exactly knowing what was going to happen, but... Uh, I had ideas about intention, um, and instead of approaching it, I guess, in more of a technical or scientific way, I, I more approached it sort of abstract and uh, intuitive, you know, based. Uh, so I had the idea that if I spend time with people and the animals that they're working with, if I can really live into that experience, then I should be able to translate it musically. And if I translate it accurately and honorably, it should have an interesting effect. 
And I believe that uh, it did in a lot of cases. Uh, we saw some interesting reactions from the animals and, you know, had really nice feedback from the people uh, who experienced it. I would do things like one day I chose a patient, uh, a dog a patient, and I followed them all day, you know, going through all their appointments just to see what is the experience like of going from, you know, rehab to oncology to checkups of various natures and try to live into, uh, I guess, more the wonder of what they're experiencing because there's no uh, there's no real way to communicate directly with language, obviously. So the only way to really communicate is through living into the experience and trying to empathize with it. Um, and that's one of the reasons I chose the the Greek word thauria because it's um it's often used in Eastern Orthodoxy. It's approximately translated to to gaze at or to be aware of, uh, and it's often associated with contemplating with the eyes or with the mind. And to me, that's really similar to how we do communicate with animals since we can't fully speak to them, but we can make that contact. We're speaking with musician composer Charlie Rao about his album, Thauria, inspired by his time as an artist in residence at the LSU School of Veterinary Medicine. Charlie, let's talk some more about the album. I know I noticed that there are 13 tracks, there are many tracks, and they're all part of the a whole. I noticed that there's Thauria Part 1, Part 2, all the way to Part 13. Yeah, I, I like to work in uh, short form uh, because I'm really inspired by lullabies because a lullaby is easy to remember, um, it's easily shared, and it's designed to blur time. Uh, because if something's really short and it's open-ended like a lullaby is, it means it could be repeated over and over again, or it could just happen once. If the music is really brief but honest, then it's up to the listener how long they want to experience the music. They also sort of incite wonder. Um, there's there's a sort of a wondrous element to that type of music. Do you, do you have any favorites on the album? And, and what are the stories behind them? What interactions, observations inspired these particular uh, tracks, these particular songs? Some of them are about uh, individual people or individual animals that I spent time with. And I was trying to translate the experience of spending time with those people or animals. And then some of them are more broad. Um, like I would go back to where I was staying and just write about what that whole experience was like so some of them are very honed in and some of them are more broad and uh one example would be uh part one and part 13 the opening and closing um are the same the same lullaby but it opens as a solo guitar piece and it closes as a choir piece i wanted to know first of all like uh, how people would receive that and it's interesting because a fair amount of people didn't realize on the first listen that it was the same thing uh, the same melody and uh, I wrote that that one um, uh, specifically after uh, a visit to the oncology department uh, with Dr. Jamie Looper and just the conversations we had about what happens there and the work that's being done there, uh, I felt was pretty hard hitting. It's, it's such an intense position to be in. There was just a lot going on there uh, with the idea of something that uh, Dr. Looper, Sandy and myself were talking about, lots of different things that just did sound it sounded like music to me the idea that uh, healing and wellness can exist universally basically if, if there's a terminal patient healing can still happen wellness can still happen 
there's there's always wellness and healing that can occur. And uh, I like the idea of starting uh, as a solo guitar piece and very focused and uh, sort of communicative in that way, where it's it's very small and it's very focused and very simple, and then ending with a bloom of six voices singing the same. Because uh, to me, uh, the listening experience of that was just that, that death isn't an ending, uh, that it's, it's, there is an open-endedness to what wellness and healing is and continues to be. Charlie Rao, his new album, Thauria, is out now on Destiny Records. It's available on all streaming platforms. Charlie, it's been a pleasure having you here on Louisiana Considered. Thank you so much. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Yesterday, Jeff Landry officially assumed the position of the 57th governor of Louisiana in an inauguration ceremony. And in light of this transition of power, we wanted to look back at our state's political history and bring you the story of Louisiana's and the nation's first black governor. Well, sort of. In 1868, Oscar Dunn became the first African-American elected lieutenant governor of any state. And by 1871, he became the first acting governor after the governor of the time, Henry Clay Warmoth, had to leave Louisiana to recuperate from foot injuries on two occasions. Back in 2018, the Tripod team looked into the story of Oscar Dunn. At a time when our nation was tearing down decades-old monuments of defamed political leaders, NPR's Lane Kaplan-Levingson explored the monument that was supposed to be erected of Dunn in the late 1800s, but never came to be. This is Tripod, New Orleans at 300. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson. I want to introduce you to a guy named Brian Mitchell. He's an assistant professor of history at the University of Arkansas, Little Rock, and he's from New Orleans. He told me about a guy named Oscar James Dunn. Ever heard of him? I hadn't either. But right around the time that this guy Oscar Dunn died, here's what a journalist wrote. That there'll be three pictures that hang in the home of every African-American from that day forward. Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and Oscar James Dunn. Well, we know about Honest Abe. We know about Douglas, or most of us do, including that, you know, he's dead. But Dunn? Not so much. I wondered how Brian knew about him. As a child, I'd spend my days after school with my great-grandmother, and she'd tell us family stories. And family stories always sort of led to important patriarchs or matriarchs in the family. And I'm a distant relative to Oscar James Dunn. Dunn is Brian's great-great-great-uncle. So his family talks about Dunn, and then Brian goes to third grade. It was back in 1976. The teacher asked if anyone was related to anyone in Louisiana history that was famous. And I said, I'm related to Oscar James Dunn. And she said, well, who's that? And I said, well, he's the first black lieutenant governor, not just for Louisiana, but for the entire nation. And she said, there's never been a a black lieutenant governor in Louisiana. And eight-year-old Brian was like, uh, yeah, there was. And he's my uncle. What's even crazier is that this man, Oscar James Dunn, the great, great, great uncle of Brian Mitchell, 
was not only the first black lieutenant governor of the United States, he was born a slave. Dunn was born in New Orleans about 1822. Uh, he was born to a slave mother. Dunn's mom then fell in love with a free man of color named James Dunn, who then buys her and her two kids for $800. And when Dunn turns 11, he's free. That changes Dunn's life forever. It changes him from a slave to being a free person of color. Now Dunn can go to school, and he's good at school. And he learns a trade, plastering, and he's good at that too. He grows up and becomes the head of the Black Masonic Lodges for Louisiana. Then the Civil War ends and Reconstruction begins. African Americans are all over the South. They're released and people need their labor for agriculture. So he opens an office uh, and what he does there is write contracts for the recently re released slaves so they can work on plantations and not be cheated. Basically, Dunn tries to make sure newly freed people actually get paid for their labor through writing those contracts. And to no surprise, he's good at that too, which has people around Dunn telling him he'd make a good politician. Because people of color, mainly those who were free prior to emancipation, like Dunn, were now entering politics. So Dunn runs for office and gets elected. Nick Weldon works for the historic New Orleans collection. While doing research over there, he discovered Oscar Dunn. He was a radical Republican. You know, they were the progressive party that was trying to extend civil rights to African Americans, especially in the South. And then there were the Democrats, the ex-Confederates, and Dunn's political rivals. Nick found a quote in the New Orleans Times newspaper where local Democrats described their political opponent. The taint of honesty and of a scrupulous regard for the official proprieties is a serious drawback and innervating a reproach upon the lieutenant governor. Uh, translation please. Basically they're like, he is so fair-minded and scrupulous that it's annoying. Got it. His rivals couldn't help but respect him, whether they liked it or not. Dunn used this bipartisan respect to advance his career and get things done. He became a big proponent for universal male suffrage. You know, the right to vote. Civil rights legislation, the integration of public schools. So he did a lot um, against a lot of pressure and in a pretty hostile environment. Hostile is one way of putting it, or one could say, and may I say, it was crazy times. Things were insane. The Louisiana governor at the time was a man named Henry Warmoth, a white 20-something Republican from New York. He and Dunn were elected on the same ticket in 1868. That's three years after the Civil War ended. Dunn was 20 years older than Governor Warmoth. And at first, he really believed that this young Yankee wanted equality between whites and blacks. But then, the governor betrayed the lieutenant governor. And when it actually came time for him to sign a bill that would protect blacks, he says no. When Governor Warmoth refused to put pen to paper on a civil rights bill, it straight up divided the Republican Party. There's basically a Dunn camp and a Warmoth camp. They had separate police forces, separate conventions. These were two Louisiana Republicans who were supposedly part of the same administration, but were in direct competition. It was complete chaos. There was no, there was no order, uh, but Warmoth was losing his grasp. His political grasp, his power. 
the Democrats, who used to be the Confederates, they won't accept Governor Warmoth because they see him as a grade-A carpetbagger. And the radical Republicans, especially the African-Americans, realize that Governor Warmoth is working completely against their interests. The next gubernatorial election is around the corner, and there are talks of impeaching Warmoth. Meanwhile, Dunn's career is going great. First of all, if Governor Warmoth is impeached, Dunn would become the first black governor ever. And on top of that, rumors are flying that the president of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant, is considering Dunn for vice president. And then, in November of 1871, Dunn goes to a dinner. You're listening to Tripod, New Orleans at 300. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson. Here's Brian Mitchell again, the descendant of Oscar Dunn. There is a, a public dinner that he's invited to, and thereafter he becomes very sick. And there is speculation that he may have been, as they say, dosed at that particular dinner. Dosed. Nick Weldon. It was after a dinner, um, and sudden violent illness, vomiting, you know, unconsciousness, and... Dunn calls a couple of his close friends in, and two days later... He died, and it was a shock to the city. The official cause of death was congestion of the brain and lungs, I believe. Meaning Oscar Dunn died of natural causes. But there were plenty of people that simply said, that's not what happened. They looked at Dunn's death, and they saw one thing, poison. Some of the symptoms of arsenic poisoning were similar with him. The vomiting, the shivering, and and all of these things. And a number of doctors wouldn't sign the official medical examiner's report. In fact, four out of seven doctors who examined Dunn refused to sign off on him dying of natural causes. They suspected murder. But the family refused an autopsy. So that was that. Here's Brian Mitchell. We really just don't know what happened to Dunn. We don't know if he died of natural causes for whether um, he had been poisoned by a rival political camp. But there hasn't been any definitive proof. And there have been a number of papers written on Dunn's death. There have probably been more papers written on Dunn's death than Dunn's life. So Dunn is dead at the age of 49 in 1871, at the peak of his political career, with a country in shock people show up to pay their respects. There were over 50,000 people that turned out for his funeral. Um, of, and the composition of the crowd was made, was made up of every facet of New Orleans society, black and white. Including most of Dunn's political rivals, the men who potentially poisoned him. And Governor Warmoth, of all people, was a pallbearer. It's called the largest funeral in New Orleans history, uh, and I always point out that it's probably one of the oldest second lines in New Orleans history. There are jazz bands that are there. The second line stretched a mile long from the intersection of Claiborne and Canal, where Dunn's house was, to Magazine Street, and then proceeded to the St. Louis Number 2 Cemetery. Yeah, to say he was well-loved in the city would have been an understatement. Which brings us back to that monument, the one I mentioned in the beginning of this story. Remember the monument that never happened? Yeah, 
That was meant for Oscar Dunn. The Louisiana legislature uh, passed an act, um, and it says here, this is from 1873, Act Number 57, to incorporate the O.J. Dunn, Oscar James Dunn, Monumental Association of Louisiana. That's Nick Weldon again from the Historic New Orleans Collection. The Louisiana State Legislature dedicated $10,000 to Dunn's monument, which was a lot of money back then, like a couple hundred G's in today's money. But money never spent. I do not know where the opposition came from. I do not know why the monument was not erected. All I know is that it isn't there. So mystery number one, dude dies unexpectedly. Mystery number two, monument signed by the governor of Louisiana and $10,000 allotted for the erection of this monument does not happen. That's correct. While people were literally writing legislation to memorialize Dunn in this monument, Brian says there's another movement happening to discredit Dunn. He found an old drawing from that time of a Mardi Gras ball held by the crew of Comus. They had an elaborate ball, and in the center of the ball, the king dressed as an ape, a giant ape. It was a massive gorilla costume that the king of Comus wore, saying... The first black lieutenant governor of Louisiana was an ape. I argue that it's at that point that revisionists start trying to take over the narrative and rewrite Dunn as a villain instead of a hero in American history. And Nick says that has a really fast domino effect. When you see this somewhat rising African-American political star at a time of all this strife, the guy dies. And pretty much with him was all of the gains that he had fought for, civil rights, suffrage, integration in public schools. I mean, all that stuff, you know, with the pullback of Reconstruction started to go away after that. At the same time, the Ku Klux Klan is just getting started. The White League is just getting started. So by taking down Dunn, they were able to reinforce notions of black inferiority in Louisiana. So 20 years after Dunn dies, instead of building a monument for a former slave who was on his way to being Veep, the Liberty Place monument goes up to honor an attack by a white supremacist group, the Crescent City White League, against an integrated police force. All of this progress that was made gets immediately wiped off the slate. You have the stories of these people wiped off the slate, too. So 100 years after Dunn dies, his descendant, Brian Mitchell, goes to elementary school in New Orleans, and his teacher tells him that Louisiana never had a black lieutenant governor. My entire life I went to classes, and I loved history, and I, I, you know, I, I heard about Manifest Destiny, and I heard about melting pots, and uh, none of these things uh, seem to, to explain my condition as an African American in the United States. But Dunn did. Do you think, you know, if the monument had been erected, if there was an Oscar Dunn monument, that more people would know who that man was? Most certainly, most certainly. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. 
Thanks to our guest, musician, composer, and former artist-in-residence at LSU School of Veterinary Medicine, Charlie Rao. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.